Tommy Davies is a Nigerian investor, author, and tech evangelist who is widely considered the godfather of Africa's angel investment scene. He's also the founder of the Lagos Angel Network and the founding president of the African Business Angel Network, ABAN. He lives and works mostly in the UK and has spent much of the last decade mentoring and advising startup founders, angel investors, venture capitalists, and a good number of public and private institutions. As an angel investor, he continues to manage a growing portfolio of tech-enabled businesses that originate from Africa. This is African Tech Conversations. So you don't do breakfast? I do do breakfast. You just didn't do breakfast today? Yeah, well, I was rushed this morning, so I didn't, you know, I didn't get a chance to get anything in, which is why I was a bit pain. And even then, at lunch, one of the young girls asked, "Are you on a diet?" Because <laughs> you couldn't, you couldn't even take in as much as you needed. No, no, no. Well, I, t- I took in as much as I need, but not as much as I want. And so, you know, the, the people, uh, you know, I do the, a lot of these interviews and typically you try and, you know, you ask sometimes people to walk you through a day in their life or, you know, to give you a sense of what, their, what the vibe is like being them. And sometimes they leave you thinking, oh, oh please, come now. It, it sounds a little like you're trying to sound a little more busy than you are. Having just observed you at this conference has been <laughs> almost stressful. <laughs> well, you, you sort of get used to it because when you love people, as I do, then, you know, it makes, it makes it fun and interesting. I try to sort of, every human being has a perspective. And I come from the school of Desiderata, you know, um, and so... Please expand for those of us not familiar with Desiderata. Desiderata is an old uh, maxim by Max Ehrman. I think it's either the 30s or the 40s, and it's, it's quite long. Um, but it goes something like this, and excuse me if I miss out bits of it, but um, I, I tend to drag the piece I need into my life at any given point in time. And it says, go placidly, which is quietly, amid the noise and the haste, and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, that is, without compromising yourself, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly and listen to others. And this is what we were just talking about now. Even the dull and ignorant, they too have their own story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. Why should you do that? Because they're vexations to the spirit. If you compare yourself to others... You may become vain or bitter. Why would you become vain? Because they'll always be greater, and that will make you bitter, or lesser, and that may make you vain, persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans, and keep interested within your own career. However humble it is, it is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. However, you know what? Don't distress yourself with dark imaginings because everywhere life is full of heroism and many people strive for high ideals. Um, I think what it is is beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself, okay? Do not feign affection, neither be cynical about love. Because in the face of all heredities, that is challenges and everything, and disenchantment, love is actually as perennial as the grass. 
you are a child of the universe at the end of the day you're no less than the trees and the stars and you have a right to be here and whether or not it's clear to you there's absolutely no doubt that the universe is unfolding as it should and it comes from my favorite priest therefore be at peace with god whatever you conceive him to be and whatever your labors and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life it is still a beautiful world with all its shram drudgery and broken dreams so be cheerful and strive to be happy wow i suppose the the question uh, that comes to mind after hearing all that is how would you like to be remembered how would i like to be remembered as somebody who cared that's it he cared about people i met him at uh, demo africa 2016 and boy he cared that's it bottom line so there's something interesting you've done um over the last few days you've been in south africa something you've never done before as an angel investor and um i'd like you to tell me why you chose this year this month these last few days to be the very first time you ever share what your portfolio as an investor looks like the specifics of it well simply because uh there's this song put your money where your mouth is or you ain't saying a damn thing and um the Africa Business Angel Network is focused on being a network of networks so create networks educate angel investors and engage with the policy makers to ensure that they create an enabling environment for angel investors um but when you day after day trying to make that happen um you need to sort of set an example and i've not you know while it's not something i i don't like to brag or say oh yeah this is me or what have you but the first objective okay which is to create networks is what yesterday what happened yesterday you know south africa business angel networks was actually born from the efforts of an aban vice president by the name of chris campbell okay um he led that charge supported by another vice president um alex fraser and of course our director general and all the other people um but to see it's one thing to say this is what we're aiming for it's another thing to actually see it come to life and what i wanted to do was to actually inspire people to say look don't think you have to be a billionaire to actually have a portfolio of companies Um my average ticket size is $25,000 but I have a portfolio and I just thought it would help to inspire the South African angels especially given one of the companies in the portfolio is a South African company and the company is Super Strikers am I right Strike Entertainment it's called which are the publishers of Super Strikers So we're going to come back to that cuz I'd like if we have time you know you obviously catching a flight back it's been inside I think it's worth saying that <laughs> we've tried and failed at having this conversation at least twice um so there's a lot of grace involved in this moment I think yes it's 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 quite fascinating yes right so I I I, I want to take it back to um when you were perhaps younger In fact, there's a fascinating story I've heard you tell about the origins of your name. Um you go by Tommy, which is only part of a name. Uh, t- tell tell me uh, about that, please. Well, let, let me let me add some flavor to it because my full name, okay, is Harry, which is my first name, Ola Oluwa Tommy Davis. Ola Oluwa Tommy stands for the wealth of God 
is enough for me. Okay, Ola is wealth. Olua is God, and Tomi is enough for me. Um, so I go by Tomi, which is I'm enough for me. Wow! And um, have you had any trouble living up to the name you were given by by who? By the way, who would have given you that name? By the way, my my grandmother, I believe, gave me you know gave me the name um, if if memory serves me right. But in terms of, I, I haven't had to live live up to the name. Um, God's done His part, and He's made sure that. I've never really been in a sticky situation. I didn't have an out, and and that I can only you know attribute to God's you know being on side with me. And so you have a very uh, uh, you have very rich heritage as far as your parents and certainly your father and many of the things he achieved. Tell us a little bit about him and um, and the challenge or perhaps the joy. The, the 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 difficulty or perhaps the 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 privilege of of being his son well it's a motivation because um i i see it as a privilege uh my father uh was the late h o davis q c um and he was actually knighted by the french um i think uh, it was chevalier de lord national du mérité français so he was a knight in France, and uh, he was a Queen's Consul in England. And uh, he was an amazing lawyer because he had people like Jomo Kenyatta. He defended Kenyatta during the Mau Mau trials, which is how he became QC. Um, Mandela was once his client. Um, and those are the notable Africans. Um, I'll, leave, I'll leave others um, out. He was also a minister in the First Nigerian Republic because he was one of the advocates of Nigeria's uh, independence. So, you know really really size 12 boots you know to my size nine and um, the funny thing is his friend was my grandfather um, who was my my mother's father who was actually the first black first Nigerian uh, Barclays bank manager um, uh, of that point in time so you know you come from stock like that um, what you don't want is to be the lesser son of a greater father and let's maybe skip to you being a teenager who has to grapple with what I can only imagine is, you know, a tale of two worlds, really, because there's this experience you're having with your father and who he is and what he's achieving abroad. And then there's the realities of being a, <laughs> a, young, a young man coming of age in, in Africa. What comes to mind when I, when, I, when I intro that era of your life? Well, um, I was, I guess I'd call myself a problematic child, you know, if, when, I, when you look back at it, because um, I, even till today, a lot of my friends are, oh, God, tea for trouble, you know. To this day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have, uh, there's a girlfriend of mine. Um, she's married to one of my close friends, and every, we were in primary school together, and she told me I used to beat her up, you know, and that's how bad I was. Um, get you locked up in 2016 yeah well it depends if you're in primary school no it's not I guess not that just makes you a bully yeah exactly your parents are going to give you a good hiding and you know that kind of stuff but in secondary school I, I remember I didn't want to go there but I ended up in the premier college in Nigeria at that time King's College and um I caused so much, so many problems that my dad had to yank me out and put me into an authoritarian school. 
Um, so I ended up in about three or four secondary schools during my time before ending up in the States in university. And then you, you then, correct me if I'm wrong, graduate as the only black person in your, was it computer science uh, class at, at, at a university? Where was this and what was that like? University of Miami Institute of Artificial Intelligence, which was part of the computer science and business. It, it was a new construct then, um, and I studied systems analysis um, and then did a postgrad writing reentry orbits for the space shuttle in in stochastic processes, um, and of course, you know these are things that um, when you think Miami at that time is still deep south, and um, they didn't have too many black people who weren't on the football team as part of the college campus. So it was interesting. There were quite a few of us, and funnily enough, mostly. Nigerians of, um, you know, reasonable wealth uh, at, at that point in time because Miami was not a cheap university. And so, and so you went from being a problematic teenager, right, to like a classic overachiever. Like, what do you think, what, what do you think, uh, what do you at- attribute that to, do you think? Oh, no, there was a big in-between where, you know, I just, uh, the first, I, I graduated late in life, actually. I was in my mid-20s when I graduated. Most of my classmates graduated at 21, 22. I didn't graduate till I was about 24, 25. And what had happened in between was I was just faffing around, you know. Just, you name it, I've been there, done that, you know. And that's why I look at people today and they say, oh, but you don't drink, you don't smoke, you know. I says, trust me, there's none of that I haven't done. Been there, done that, made the T-shirt. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, so then your career in tech begins in the 1980s, roundabout, working in, in roles in systems management for FTSE 100-level companies like Total and uh, then Marx and Spencer, Ernst & Young, uh, Sapient. I need to know what that was like for a young black man. Cause, and and I, I suppose I can't help... Con- trying to imagine the contrast or the similarities perhaps in the experience your father had being no doubt one of the very few black lawyers in in England in his time and then you fast forward being one of the few black men in 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 tech proper so what comes to mind you know when when in terms of that well, the, the funny thing is I'm going to give a shout-out to a gentleman by the name of Tom Ferris because Tom was my boss at IBM when I graduated, and that was my first job. And till the day I die, I'll never forget what Tom said to me, which is unethical in, by today's standards. And it was something like this. Excuse my uh, acting up. It says, boy, as a soon shooter, niggas look at him. Wow. I hears, however, you's got something between them ears. You keeps your nose clean and you do as I ask you, you be fine by me. But I tell you one thing, nigga boy. You take one motherfucking step out of line, send your soul to heaven for your ass gonna be mine. You got that? Now, it sounds eminently racist in today's world, but I learned more about the business world and technology from Tom than I have from any other mentor ever since then. So that was my beginning. You know. Sorry, you count him a mentor? Yes, because Tom taught me how to code, and I still write Ruby on Rails. This is, what, 82 till now. That's how many years? Nearly 38, 40 years later, I'm still writing. Okay. Um, and he wrote 
the most amazing code on the 360s because then we used the IBM 360s and we were writing at that point in COBOL, ALGOL and um, OSJCL. But what he taught me in terms of essentials of how machines take instructions will always apply to machines. It's pretty much like once you understand human psychology, you always understand human psychology. So I'll always give him that credit. And that was the beginning of my life. Um, from there, it was working with the French who, oh, um, I don't know if you're still around, Lou Chevalier. My apologies for putting the code double zero. Um, on your machine and making you think it was spoiled. <laughs> but I have to show you, you weren't the only one that knew things about computers because I worked for ELF and they just didn't believe uh, Niger because this was in Nigeria. They didn't believe Nigerians could understand computing to the level I did. And, and that was interesting, just sort of showing them up. Kind of like that debate about the Great Zimbabwe Ruins and how Cecil John Rhodes funded so much uh, quote-unquote, uh, investigation, academic investigation into which European race, which European travelers could have possibly built the ruins because it couldn't have been Africans. Exactly, exactly. So now um, I look at that and I, I think we've proven to the world, given what we're doing in mobile technologies, that, look, we, our brains are as good as anyone else's. We may be impoverished in infrastructure. We may be disadvantaged. Um, due to history but definitely um we are we stand as equals to the asiatics or the europeans and so i mean you you, you spoke at the launch of uh, as you mentioned the launch of sa sa ban uh, the south african uh, business angels network and you also had an opportunity to speak and and be a panelist at demo africa you were introduced as an entrepreneur a writer a speaker a mentor and investor an evangelist and no doubt somebody that everybody wants to speak to <laughs> i had to beat people right off <laughs> to get this interview um if you were forced to be only one thing i have to stick with it which which one of those would it be Ooh, which one would it be? I'm at a stage in life now where I could probably just sit down and write. And that, you know, I'd, I'd be cool with that. Um, I, I have a lot I would like to share that I believe is worth sharing. Um, and if somebody says, okay, you can only do one thing. In fact, if I look at the way I'm organizing myself for latter life, that's probably what I'm going to do is writing and speaking. And so how do you decide to spend your time? Because that's something that fascinates me about you and at least my experience in trying to um, access your time from an advisory point of view, uh, from an insights point of view, just landing this interview. Um, how do you decide what to spend time on? And, and, and what process or system do you use to, to govern that? Well... Once every five years, I look at five years ahead and I set priorities in terms of what are the things that interest me over the next, you know, that'll, be, that'll drive me over the next five years. And if anything fits in it, then my passion goes into it. If it doesn't, I give a polite no. And it's, it's really that easy. My family's always top of that list. Um, although, funnily enough, they weren't for a decade where I just figured, yeah, you know, um, I'm, I've got an amazing wife, and uh, she she just picked picked the baton and ran with it for two decades. While I've floated all over the continent doing some of the stuff we've been talking about, um, but by and large, um, 
if I look ahead at the next few years, it is a spending time um, around trying to get investors to build a continent is a top priority for me. Um, making sure that my children go mainstream is a priority for me. What does that mean, mainstream? Well, making sure they... I, I don't want to say they get married or they have businesses or have jobs, but they become self-sufficient, independent and autonomous, you know, um, of my wife and I. So, that's so Sorry, I interrupted you. So family, um, so you were talking about the next five years and yes. your priorities. And then um, I'm very, very clearly focused on my home city, which is Lagos, um, and getting Lagos to be what a lot of us Lagosians are hoping, which is one of the key cities in the world of tomorrow. And you grew up in Yaba, apparently. Yes, I did. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Yaba area father, as I call myself. And it's turning into quite a vibe, that place. Yes. Um, well, yeah, we, we, believe, we believe that... Yeah, I, I don't want to say Silicon Valley because it, it gives a lot of emotive connotations, but we believe that Yaba can be a hotbed for innovation as an innovation, a tech innovation center for the world. Um, of Africa going forward and that's what we're building okay so coming to something you just brought up in terms of your 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 passion and your your thrust to 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 get Africans I guess getting you know feeling having more of a sense of ownership around this ecosystem that we're trying to build and not constantly look to 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 you know look west or east for, for help in doing this, what is your biggest frustration? What, what, what has been your, your biggest frustration as the founding president of the African Business Angels Network uh, in terms of the attitude of the emerging class of angel investors that we see coming up on the continent? What, what has it been the most frustrating thing or habit, perhaps, attitude that you've observed? Um, it, it is justifiable, but it's still frustrating, and that is the emphasis and the focus on tangibility of assets. So you will find that intellectual property assets is something we don't get our heads around very, very easily. And that's what technology is all about. We like the impact of it. We like the feel of it. But in terms of how it's arrived at, um, high net worth individuals just don't get it. So they'll build bridges, they'll build houses, they'll build, you know, they'll buy cars, anything tangible. But if you say, you know, we'd like to build a system that helps mother, pregnant mothers, okay, deliver babies more safely by having an app that is going to allow, you know, them to do X, Y, Z. I'm not quite sure I get that. So it is those people who have made it in society and have significant disposable income being able to, you know, allocate some of that to the next generation um, to use intellectual property to create value. And so what question would you like to hear more often from people in that position? Perhaps people who are not necessarily uh, able to come to the table with uh, significant amounts of wealth or disposable income, but perhaps uh, expertise or, uh, um, like you say, intellectual capital. What questions should they be asking more frequently? Very simple. How can I help? And who would they ask that of? The ecosystem? Entrepreneur. The youth. Those coming up know where it is they want to go. They can see the future better than we can. Don't forget, the older you get, unless you are in certain structures, and you know, uh, we can talk about that, uh, the less likely you are 
to be attuned to the future, you, you start to get a sense of your mortality and that diminishes your vision into the future. There are rare human beings who, you know, till the end of their lives continue to see the future. Some say I'm in that category, but that's a different discussion. But it is the fact that somebody who's in his 20s is looking at you in your 50s or 60s and saying, by the time I am your age, this is what I want to do. So the question then becomes, how do I help you do that? You know, to me, to, to some extent, what you've described uh, is part of why I consider what I consider the, the, the definition of humility, this ability to imagine what life would look like without you. And I think it's at the fundamental core and it's at the core of what I think is it causes incumbents in any industry, the financial industry, you know, traditional tech, whatever we call that now, to assume they'll be here and things will be the way they are and they'll be able to dictate terms for the next decade or more. We've still got holographic imaging coming, okay? We've got the rise of AI versus VR, okay? We've got, uh, sorry, yeah, AR versus augmented reality versus virtual reality. Personally, my vote is on augmented, but, you know, hey, Facebook's bending on, you know, virtual reality, so who am I? But you've got all these technologies, and that's just the beginning. By the time we move, you know, out of silicates and silicone-based technologies and we move into biotech proper, it's going to be phenomenal what we're going to be doing with the human body, for example. You're going to have extensions to your body that you can't even believe imaginable. People talk about Google Glass. Google Glass was just the beginning. Okay, it's just, you know how you get a quick snap into something in the future and you, you're back into reality? That's what that is. So there's so much still coming, you know. Um, a lot of automations coming where people are umming and ahhing about what Elon Musk is doing with driverless cars. You ain't seen nothing yet, okay. You haven't even, you know, it, th these are just early stages of what technology is going to be. Technology or software is eating the world and, you know, it's those who get it that will understand that. Just like the Industrial Revolution fundamentally altered the world, okay? And nobody could, Im at the beginning, have imagined that Henry Ford would do what he did with cars, for example. You know, and look at where we are with cars today. That's what we're talking about here. And so, you know, you a brilliant segue into, you know, trying to pick your mind into what's, what's your pet investment interest at the moment? Which area of tech is just... The first thing you think about in the morning and the last thing you think about at night. And, and perhaps to make it even more complicated, perhaps the, if I were to force you right now to put your last million dollars into that, into that idea or that area of tech, which one would it be? There are three. It's a triangle. Sitting, sitting on the consumer end is augmented reality. But sitting behind it, okay, is artificial intelligence using big data in the cloud. So you can imagine those three working in tandem and what they can deliver in terms of augmented reality. You just created a virtual Voltron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll, I'll try and imagine that for a moment. Uh, and uh, I know in addition to that, and, I, and I obviously I, pushed, I pushed, put you in a corner, which you, you don't do well with, with staying in a box. But I know listening to you speak that you have a huge burden, specific to Africa now, uh, for, for e-commerce, e silly me, um, e-learning and what, 
what I've heard you say seems to be uh, uh, an inability to understand just how big this trend is going to be for the continent. Uh, talk, talk about that a little bit. And perhaps use that to link into your, your, uh, your involvement uh, with the Super Strikers comic book. Huh. Oh, not yet. no, I don't want to give away my secrets yet. We, the, you know, watch this space on what Super Strikers does because I've got board members. I've got a CEO by the name of um, Richard Morgan Renfield who owns the company. I'm just one tiny little piece of it and I, I try and, you know, sort of help out. Um, but you did touch on one of my favorite uh, subjects, which is technology-enabled learning. Okay. Note I did not say education technology-enabled learning. That is the ability to learn to do something supported by technology. I believe that is where the future of education should be going and should be. Why is that important? It's important because the classical education systems we have now were designed for the Industrial Revolution, and that was to create factory workers and, you know, in fact, with slight modification, what we call knowledge workers. Okay, the time for the knowledge worker is coming to an end. And you will no longer be measured on what you know. We measure doctors on what they know. We measure lawyers on what they know, etc., etc. You're going to be measured on what you can learn, how quickly you can learn it, and how good you can put it to use. These are going to be the parameters of the future. And that's where technology kicks in, both in supporting you in your learning capabilities but also delivering assessments okay of your capacity okay to execute based on what you've learned wow wow okay i want to use what you've just said to ask my next question startup founders walking the grounds of this convention center many of them trying to speak to you um Many of them, perhaps to a, a, a lesser, a, a greater or lesser extent, being able to to do what you've just said, take what they know and apply it. Right? What should startup founders be spending the most energy trying to accomplish in starting a company or uh, achieving achieving goals, as far as you know, learning or, or getting an outcome? I don't know if you understand my question. What what should a startup found in the context of what you just said and the importance of how, as a fundamental skill of the future, we'll be assessed on how we're able to apply knowledge, acquire it quickly, how quickly we'll be able to acquire it, and how effectively we'll be able to deploy it. What should I be thinking about as a startup founder, given what you've just said? Okay, well, first thing is, Startup is what? Commerce. What's the nature of commerce? The exchange of value. So that tells you you need to understand who you're exchanging value with. Very simple. That, on a level, doesn't gel with the attitude we see coming out of hubs like Silicon Valley, where it seems to be, if you have a great idea which has enough people tweeting about it or Facebooking about it, you might be onto a good thing, in which case, you know, I'll throw some money at you. Well, why, why, are, we, why are we raving about Facebook? Why are we raving about Uber? Why are we raving about Airbnb? It's because they've got traction. And Uber understands the nature, you know, of the short traveler. Airbnb understands the nature of the long traveler, okay? 
Facebook understands the nature of the human being. It's that simple. The more you understand who's giving you custom, the more sustainable your business is. I've never thought about those three businesses in context of how they've taken things they know really well and deployed it really. Because at the heart of it, it's really as simple as you said. That's, that's the bottom line of it. You know, because, look, let's not forget, whether it's Uber, Facebook, or any, it's just a piece of software. All right? Oh, you just blew my mind. I hadn't, <laughs> I never thought about it. I'm going to go home and actually think about all my endeavors in that context. Oh, which brings me to my next question. What, what is the science around how you decide where to, 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 to invest in terms of value, in terms of what you just said? And how much, of that, how much of that is linked to, oh, I just like that person or that idea? You, you just said it. Same reason I'm sat here. If I didn't like you, I wouldn't grant as much time as I have for this interview. Everything is about human chemistry and how that chemistry fits into your desired objectives. And in your mind, the enthusiasm we have around the emergence of the the African tech ecosystem. Um, I'm interested because, I mean, you were caught up in the, in the dot-com bubble when, you know, I think you were working for, for Marks and Spencer, right? Is that correct? No. Actually, during dot-com, I was, a, I was a, a Ernst & Young, and I was actually the, one of the gentlemen responsible for Boo.com. No. <laughs> really? That $100 million fuck-up, yeah, that was me. Are you serious? Oh, yes. Um, Slow clap. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you were the bubble. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, unfortunately, too much of that money went up somebody's nose, and, you know, they didn't listen to it, whatever reason. But the, the, the key thing is, and that's why I want to do a fail fest, here in South Africa, is we don't celebrate failure and we don't understand that it's a necessary ingredient to success. That, I think, is one of the downsides of, of the continent also is uh, Asia is even worse. We tend to hide our failures or we tend to uh, not brag about them as rites of passage. So we see the final shiny finished product and we assumed it was a straight line you know, to the finish line, not understanding the different diversions that the individual had to go through. And it's never really about what happens to you. It's about how you react to what happens to you. And that's what defines whether or not you're a success. Wow. And so in the context of, of, of the continent, I guess where I was going with my question is, um, what do you say to people who are worried that a bubble might occur here uh, or, or, or that we might be pumping an industry that is primed to, to go the way the, 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 the tech industry did back in the 90s? We are. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. We are, and the reasons are clear. Maybe they're clear to me and not as clear to others. But, you know, look, look at the fundamentals. On average, African countries are experiencing anywhere from 5 to 8.5% growth. In the meantime, you've got Western countries in negative growth. Okay, and Asia's, you know, got its problems too, especially if you look at the BRIC countries who were the stars of everybody um, years ago. So um, you, find, you find a lot of money making the beeline for Africa. Unfortunately, some of it is called social impact, or impact investing. They're on hiding to nothing because, A, they don't understand the context in which they're putting the money, so they lose their shirts, and they will. Okay, as sure as I am that I'm sitting here talking to you, Within the next 36 months, we're going to see some horror stories around impact investing in Africa. 
I can guarantee you that. So from that standpoint, we got a challenge. But at the same time, what we're running parallel will be some amazing value creation stories um, that, that will sort of balance things out. Who will win? Your guess is as good as mine. You don't sound perturbed in the least. What, uh, is this pragmatism speaking? Uh, is it a sense of, I've been there? <laughs> I, 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 hope the, I hope the last bubble burst. <laughs> what, 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 to, what do you owe what seems to be a pretty pragmatic, calm attitude towards what you just said? Well, it's the fact that this is a race that has seen two world wars and recovered from it. Okay, I think the most recent uh, global recession was 2008 or some arguing that we're in the middle of one now. We're talking of an environment where Donald Trump is running for the president of the United States. Um, We're talking of a situation where the United Kingdom has decided to exit Europe. Um, So when you look at the chaotic state, Okay, and the fact that China is slowing down. You look at the chaotic state of the world, you just think to yourself, you know what? This too shall come to pass. There's something you called. We had a conversation some weeks ago, and um, Brexit, the Brexit thing was still fresh. And I asked you what, what you th- thought the impact might be for Africa, and you called something that I, I, you might not even remember having it said. I, you said that there might be a... There might be at the time you said there might be a positive knock-on effect to to members of the Commonwealth, or, or at least former col- uh, former colonies of the U- UK. And in 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 just the last month, Uganda has been Ugandan citizens are now granted free entry to the UK with no visa. Well, I I didn't call it alone. A lot of people saw that coming because you look at it from a different standpoint. What informed Brexit? Brexit was England and Wales. Okay, who were the old colonial masters choosing to leave? Okay, because they felt inundated by Europeans. Europe is next door to them, and that was the challenge. For you to come into the UK from, you know, except for the onslaught of those coming through the Mediterranean, from any of the colonies, you have to fly in. So there's an element or a sense of control in the first instance. The second is they know they didn't do right by us, okay? And they've been looking for a way to fix that. That's, That's part of it also. I suppose the other side of things is they can't expect the, the skills that used to free, flow in so freely from the, other, from the Eurozone into their economy to flow in as freely, as freely now as it did before the, break, the Brexit. Plus, the language challenge doesn't exist. I got you. I've got you. <laughs> I, you know, I know I don't have a lot of time with you, but they, we must touch on your book. Um, the, I'd like to talk about the African project manager and... You obviously write the book from a perspective, uh, from the from the perspective of an African who spends a great deal of time abroad, and a great deal of time, well, at least half his time on the continent, and I'm sure that gives you quite a unique perspective. What what is it that you've observed that would have led you to to write some of what you had said in that book? Well, the the book is premised on certain things, and and the first is how do you get stuff done in the West? You manage projects. Okay, at the heart of Western success is the concept of a project, which is achieving an objective using limited resources. That's all a project is. You know, we can paint it in any different ways, whether it's building a new airport or, you know, a new plane or what have you. But it's just you only have limited resources and you've got an objective or an outcome you want to achieve. 
And what has happened, you know, which is what gave birth to the book, is uh, a number of things. The first is the increase in the professionalization of project management. So we have the APM, you have um, Prince2, you have um, other project management certification uh, series. But the fundamental thing is all of them are born out of the background of Western culture. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, in the West, because you've got winter and summer, you know, pretty much like here in South Africa, if you don't do stuff in the summer, you die in the winter. So they become very, very time-focused. Time is an essential nature to them. But if you come to sun-drenched sub-Saharan Africa, where the biggest challenge we've got is rain, um, our emphasis is probably not as much on the weather, okay? It's on human beings. So there's a shift in paradigm there. Um, the, the second is individuality, okay? Um, I think, was it Louis the fifteenth or 14th or one of them that said, l'état est moi, the state is me. You know, we've got this concept in Europe and in the West of, the, you know, it's about me, okay? But in, in Africa, we tend to think in family or in village or in tribe. Corporately, Ubuntu, as they say, in this part of the world. Exactly, exactly. So these are fundamental differences that affect how you achieve, okay, an objective with limited resources. If, I, if all I have is $10 and I'm going to go alone with something, it's different to if both of us have $10 and we're going somewhere. And that's, that's the fundamental underlying principle of the African Project Manager is helping people understand risk management, time management, communications management, quality management, all the aspects of project management within the context of an African environment where ageism is alive and well and living with us, sexism is alive and well and living with us, okay? Um, to name some of the more tame-isms. Exactly, you know? So um, by the time you, you look at that and you say, well, I still want to achieve the things I achieve in the West, then you've got to take into consideration the fact that it's a different environment. So what is the biggest misconception? Because I, I know you speak, with that book, you're definitely speaking to Africans who can, who can leverage. And non-Africans. Who are interested in, in doing business here. In understanding, yeah, who, who want to understand why is Africa so different. So what's the biggest misconceptions you found in, in I'll say, the British mindset to, towards investment on the continent? They mistake... Um, conservative our conservative nature as being slothful so they take it that oh no those guys are just lazy not understanding that there's a difference in approach that's all you know and that's one of the fundamentals you know um or they're deceitful not necessarily they are just creative in thinking always looking for a different way of doing something so they don't always subscribe to processes and standards so you, you strike me as someone who's highly, highly emotionally intelligent. And I had, I had this problem in, in, in varsity um, at the cafeteria. I couldn't get there early in the morning and, and choose a seat that faced the door as people came in because I almost felt like I was absorbing 
people's energy i'd see okay oh she just broke up with her boyfriend oh he <laughs> he just failed he he just got up today and realized he did he didn't there's a test he didn't prepare for and um I, I i i'm intuitive on that on that level i'm curious to know about you and and the way you assert yourself when you walk into a room you live in britain where the you know not they're not known for being emotive and and whereas you you're a nigerian and highly expressive culture very colorful and uh, flamboyant in many respects and do you play both sides of the coin or how, how do you assert yourself i i'm i have a privilege in that i'm a, i'm trinational that way okay what do i mean by that well if the white boy gonna gonna get that way guess what i'm gonna do the black nigger on him i'm gonna be bloody american i'm gonna tell him where to go what to do and how to get off i could play that and at the same time, I can be the Nigerian man. But if you want to be civil and you really want to be English and you want to be prim and proper, and then we could go there. So that's that. It's it's the privilege of that range that you know I, I play to good effect. Now I'm going to ask for some personal advice to to, to close off before. In fact, before we, we before we do it downhill and just do a quick fire fun questions, um, uh, you you have some experience in in perhaps a different era in in bringing a media business to market. Super Strikers, and for those of you who haven't heard him share on this, if you missed the SA band launch and you weren't here for Demo Africa, well, you're just going to have to wait for him to write in a book. About <laughs> media now. There's big cabal media as well, um, so you can look out for what they might write about it. But you, 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 so you, you, you've got an investment in big cabal, which is that's a new investment play. What advice would you give to to someone trying to bring to market a a, a a a media brand at a time when the world is so saturated with media? Uh, and you know, tap into as little or as much of your experience in bringing to to market media at a time when perhaps the traditional uh, the traditional setup was a lot more sturdy and, and probably couldn't even imagine the day when the internet would take over as it has today. Um, what advice would you give to, to, to all the broadcasters trying to use this new media, these new media platforms in order to, to, to make headway? It's very simple. Be known for something. Pick whatever turf it is that's yours and be the best at it. Okay? Stick to it. It's back to remember when I was talking about Desiderata, Okay? Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel very affirmed because I think I'm trying to do that. But <laughs> thanks for that. So uh, downhill from here, really. Uh, I'm going to ask you to tell me what your favorite English food is and what your favorite uh, Nigerian food is. That's easy. Yeah. Fish and chips. Fish and chips. A classic, a goodie, an oldie but a goodie. Let me even be more specific. Cod and chips. Oh, cod and chips. That's a narrow fish, isn't it? Yeah. With mushy peas. Oh, wow. Okay, so you went all the way English there. <laughs> okay. And don't forget, you know, the vinegar. Yes. I watched a documentary on YouTube the other day that told me that more than something like 80 to 90% of the vinegar that's in the fish and chip shops in the, in the UK isn't real vinegar. It's actually some reconstituted something. Exactly. Yep, that's true. That's interesting, but it tastes good. Yep, that's it. And it must be in newspaper. It must be a newspaper. A day old, hopefully. Yeah. No more. No more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
fresh. And then fresh. And then uh, what would your favorite Nigerian delicacy be? Oh, I mean, my kitty antecedent shop. And now that's pounded yam with a goosey and stockfish. Oh, man. All right. For those of us who speak English, what is that? It's pounded yam with vegetable soup and stockfish. Wow, stockfish would be the the dried one. Yeah, it's just the dry fish that's then soaked. It's I think it's the Norwegians or the Scandinavians that you know may it's it's a long dried fish, and when it comes to us, then it's soaked and then it's cooked with a vegetable. And if you could uh, have to dinner any three people, dead or alive, um, for dinner this evening. Well, you'll be on a plane this evening, so <laughs> perhaps not this evening, but uh, in the next twenty four hours, who would you who would you pick? The three people I would have to dinner. Huh. Number one choice would be Jesus Christ. Okay, you and me both, though. <laughs> All right. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> number one, absolutely, would be Jesus Christ. Um, number two... By the way, you're the second person um, on this series to have said that. Um, uh, Gareth Cliff um, of Cliff Central. Okay. Um, he, he's, he's famously an atheist. But even he had G- uh, Jesus Christ, I think, as his second or third on the list. No, no. He is primus inter pares, if anything. First among equals, because he says we're equals. Not because I say, but because he said. All right. All right. Well, that's, that, that would be my number one, bar none. Okay. Uh, number two is a toss-up between Plato and Confucius, okay? Um, because I think those guys were just brainiacs, you know, out-to-lunch uh, kind of people um, who I, I can't imagine way back in that kind of, kind of time what their mindset, you know, um, would have been like. And the third person, ooh, oh, no, that's three. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yep. So, and you've sort of covered a good geographic region with that, right? So you've got you've got Europe, Middle East, and Asia. All right. Yeah. I guess. Which part of um, African history, like if you if I could pop, pop pop you into any part of African history, and you had to go back to an era, which era would you return to? I'd want to be part of uh, Mansa Kanka Musa's court. And why would you pick that, that era? Because Jene Gao and Timbuktu at that point in time were the center of the world. And it would be interesting to see what the gold trade and the slave trade and the salt trade across sub-Saharan Africa looked like at that point in time. It also occurs to me, I'd be interested to know what mistakes they made that maybe recur- that have been made over and over in, in history, uh, you know, from, from generation to generation. That would have seen the demise of, that, of those kingdoms. If you had to spend the rest of your life on an island and you could only pick three things, what would those three things be? And, a con- and those, none of those three things could be a person. What would those three things be? Mind you, the rest of the world carries on and the rest of it, da-da-da-da-da. What would those three things be? A Bible. An empty book that I could write in and a pen. You know, you've got the benefit of having lived as long as you had and having, I imagine you're, in mem- are, are you keeping memoirs, by the way? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> it's funny you should ask that. I've just, just a few days ago, I started putting together all my old notebooks to see if there's anything in them. Because what I do is I have notebooks rather than, you know, um, a proper diary. But I can tell what's happened to me based on them. 
Can I have dibs on on publishing a podcast series um, on parts of your life if it ever comes to that? Don't laugh because Malcolm Gladwell's put writing books aside for now and and and, and gone into podcasting. And I think it's a fascinating. Yes, he is. He's he's got this amazing series uh, where he's uh, attempting to revisit historical events and he's doing it in a pod- podcast storytelling format as opposed to writing. Oh, I've got to find out find that because Tipping Point and. Um What's the 10,000, 10-year thing? Um, I can't remember the time. Uh, yes. Uh, it's the very first book of his I read, uh, 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 Outliers. Outliers. Yeah. And then, of course, the more recent one, the um, David and Goliath. Have you read that one? I haven't read. I have not read David and Goliath. Not as good as, as Outliers, I have to say. There was Outliers and then there was another one called Blink. But I think Outliers, for me, still the best. Yeah, that was the business. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm, I'm claiming dibs. Personally, I don't rate myself as highly as I believe other people rate me. That's, my wife says that's part of my problem. But um, I, I think I've just been treading water, trying to do the best I can with what I know. But I don't, when I set myself in context, historical context, I believe that there's a lot more, you know, um, to do. And so finally, is there a question I haven't asked in this very generous amount of time you've given me um, that perhaps you would have liked me to ask and I'll be happy to, to, to indulge you and, um, and hear what you, you'd have to answer? Uh, well, something close to my mind and my heart is sort of uh, something I want to bestow or give to those who are looking at business. Um, those who have a vision for creating value. And it, it's just a small framework of how to think about your business, you know. So, um, Tommy Davis, please uh, give, give us a framework for how to approach business. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I call it for every vision that creates value, there must be a poem. As in art no not if if you can keep your head when those around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you no not that kind of poem it's actually an acronym um and it's a good way to think about the business the first thing about a business and there are two parts to the business the first is the promise or the proposition which is what what exactly is your proposition to the market what is that product what is that offer what is that service and most importantly who is it for so you've got to get that first. That's where it starts. It's all right. You know, you're solving a problem. Who's, who are you solving the problem for? Okay, there's an opportunity. Who's the opportunity for? So that is the P, which is proposition, you know, or your promise. That's, that's where business starts. And wrapped around that are things like who's the competition? You know, what are the uh, substitutes for it? What is the regulatory environment? But the bottom line of your proposition is the revenue. It must be clear. Okay, the proposition's clarity comes through revenue from customer. That, that it must answer that question when you think about it. So when you issue one statement about your proposition, he should be able to tell me, okay, what's the customer revenue stream like? So that I'm clear on that. Now that we've got the proposition clear, all right, which is the first part of the business, the question then becomes, okay, that's nice. I can see how that would be money and you could make money from that. Who's going to do that? So the O is for the organization that is going to deliver on the promise. Okay? So what kind of people are we talking about? What kind of structure are we talking about the people having? What kind of processes will they execute 
to make that happen? What kind of underlying technology do they have to deploy? You know, you start to get it, okay? And through that, you start to understand what it's going to take to create the value of the proposition, all right? So once you've got those two fundamental building blocks of your business, then you start to measure them. The first measure is money, which is the economics, the E of it. How does the economics of the proposition match the economics of the organization? In short, the cost that the organization is going to be, you know, have, does that match the revenue that the proposition is going to generate? That's the economics of it all. So once you understand that, and you can get a return on investment or return on capital employed, etc. We can get into technical details, but you understand what I mean by economics of it. Then you get to the final thing is, okay, where have you come from? Where are you now and where are you going? So what are the milestones in the journey of that value creation? Because that's where the project management mindset that you exactly. talked about comes in. Exactly, and that's the project management. So those are the milestones. So P-O-E-M, poem. And if you can articulate that in your mind, you can do an elevator pitch, you can do a business plan, and you can even run a multi-billion dollar business using that framework. Thank you so much for speaking to me and um, to speaking to all, all the people who listen to this podcast. Really, uh, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy your flight back to... Follow to- me on Tommy D. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. You're also quite socially active. Where else can people find you? On Tommy, that's Tommy D with a double E. T-O-M-I-D-E-E. And that's on all social... Twitter... Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, you name it. I'm on it. If I'm not on it, let me know. I'll get on it. <laughs> He's not taking the future lying down, this man. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. Look, I'm going to live on and on and on and on in cyberspace, as we called it when we began the internet. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversation.